Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John speaks with Chloe Cornish about the similarities and differences in sectarian politics in Iraq and Lebanon. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Chloe Cornish is Middle East correspondent for the Financial Times. Uh, Chloe, welcome to Babel. Thanks for having me, John. How did you get the beat of focusing mostly on Lebanon and Iraq? I'm not sure there are other reporters who, who sort of have that concentration. This beat actually covers Lebanon, Iraq, and Syria. Sometimes what's historically been thought of as the Levant. At one point, I think it was known as the ISIS beat. Some people think of it as the Iran influence beat. I don't think of it as that so much, but certainly those two themes have been very big in coverage over the past 10 years. What sorts of things do you think you notice covering that beat that people would be missing uh, because they're either focusing on the entire region or focusing on, on one country or another? You see linkages between those countries that sometimes might go undiscussed. When the financial crisis kicked off in Lebanon in October 2019, it wasn't long before I could see the repercussions for Syria because I was already aware, as most people who cover Syria are, of how much that country depended on Lebanon's financial system. So we were able to write about that pretty quickly as a result of covering both of those countries, having an eye on both of those economies. You have Lebanese Hezbollah, which obviously has roles to play in Syria, and then lots of parallels with other militia groups or non-state armed actors in Iraq. There's a, a whole myriad of parallels and cross-connecting issues across the three countries, security and economic. But then also you have like cultural and, and religious and, and all sorts of, of those things that I maybe don't cover on a day-to-day basis. And it also feels that, that well, Syria is is a little bit sui generis because of the the 10-year war that's been going on. You also have enduring dysfunctional politics in Lebanon and Iraq uh, that in some ways seem to be getting more deeply embedded into the way the countries work. Is there a way that, that Lebanese and Iraqis are adjusting similarly, adjusting differently to what seems to be enduringly dysfunctional politics. Lebanon and Iraq do have similar political systems in that it's always a coalition government. No one ever has a majority. That means that political parties are always haggling between themselves for months to appoint a cabinet or a prime minister. Um, Nobody has an overall majority, which means almost everyone has a veto of that leads to very dysfunctional politics in both countries. But of course, in both circumstances, the reason for this extremely dysfunctional and difficult system is to try to ensure representation for diversity of of sex and ethnic groups in the case of Iraq and in the case of Lebanon for religious sex. Both of these systems have engendered massive amounts of corruption within the states as parties use those ministries that they haggle for 
to get hold of patronage networks so they can keep looking after their supporters and bolster themselves when it comes to election time. It becomes much more about dividing resources that the state can provide. And that is true of both Iraq and Lebanon. How do people respond to that? In the past two years, we've seen huge disenfranchisement and disillusionment and upset in both countries at those systems. In October 2019, both in Iraq and in Lebanon, you had these mass protest movements, unprecedented in their nationwide scale, both calling for a sweeping change to political systems. In Lebanon, the slogan was Killin Yana Killin, which means all of them means all of them, referring to this desire to sweep out an entire political establishment and replace it with something new. In Iraq, there was a similar kind of sentiment amongst protesters. Protests in Iraq evolved from being very much around jobs and opportunities to protests that became very much more about what is this politics that we have ended up with. It's so corrupt. It's so difficult for ordinary citizens to have any impact or influence on politics. It's just this very tight elite that's looking after itself. So simultaneously in both these countries, you saw huge civil unrest over the very fabric of the political system that was governing them. So that's the main kind of response. Also, we've had in both countries a fairly big crackdown in a way on those protests. In Lebanon, much less so. In Iraq, unfortunately, somewhere around the range of 600 people were killed during those protests by security forces and by militia groups who were actively trying to suppress the protests in the hope that the political status quo would be maintained. You've also seen campaigns of uh, kidnappings and targeted assassinations of activists to really try and stop those protest movements from gaining ground. You can see the the established system, which in Iraq is a marriage between these non-state armed actors and politicians, really kicking back against these protest movements. When you talk to the protesters, do they seem similarly motivated, similarly uh, oriented? I mean, does it feel to you as when you talk to the people involved, do they seem like they are profoundly similar or profoundly different because they come from different countries and and, and different political traditions? So there wasn't really a structure that they were coalescing under. You can see more change because of the protests in Iraq, I would say. There are more groups that have come out and managed to get elected, despite everything that they've gone through and despite a massive boycott of the elections. Lebanon and Iraq have very different demographics, Um, very different expectations from each set of citizens. In Lebanon, you're talking about a country that was middle income with relatively high levels of education and higher incomes compared to the region before the onset of the financial crisis in 2019, which has seen around half of the population be dumped into poverty unceremoniously. But these protests were happening kind of before that. A lot of young people were saying that they didn't see um, their trajectory being what they wanted it to be in Lebanon. That's similar to Iraq, but those trajectories that they're envisaging were pretty different. In Iraq, you have an extremely young population, about 60% of the population under 25, which has seen a great deal of war and violence and disruption. And young people still expect the government to a certain degree to provide them with a job and with opportunities to work. That's different in Lebanon. So in Iraq, you have people saying, why isn't the government giving us a job? It's completely understandable why they say that. 
Because Iraq is having this very difficult transition from a socialist, centrally planned economy through the shock therapy of American-led invasion of 2003 to now where it's straddling this top-down government revenue-driven economic activity, trying to transition towards a more diversified economy with more private sector initiatives. It's really struggling with that. So a lot of the demands of the young people at protests in, in Iraq kind of shows you where those gaps are in the economic transition that the country is very painfully going through. And in Lebanon, the civil war, the 15-year civil war ended in 1990. So for most young people, they haven't experienced anywhere near the kinds of disruption to their lives through violence that young Iraqis have. So they are definitely hardened to the avarices of the state. Lebanon is a very dysfunctional place. There's very little electricity provided by the state. People are very reliant on themselves. And it also feels to me that the sectarian system in Lebanon was was really baked into the creation of the the state before it was a state, and then you know, as you know, it's still based on the on the census of 1932. In many ways, the U.S. exacerbated and embedded the sectarian system after 2003. Is there any sense that sectarianism in Iraq is is more recent than the way people in Lebanon talk about it, or is it so baked into the system? that it's hard even for protesters to imagine a post-sectarian state. I think in Iraq, actually, we are moving beyond the straightforward identity politics that was the main motivating factor for parties after 2003. Basically, the Shia parties at the start of Iraq's kind of democratic transition or democratic experiment, if you like, wanted to protect the gains that they had made in getting rid of Saddam Hussein. And the Shia Muslims are a majority in Iraq, whereas Sunnis are a minority. So that was a very dominant theme in the, the post-2003 political era. But now what you see within Shia politics is a lot of variation and diversity. It's not like every Shia is voting for the same guy. Far from it. Actually, what you see in the South, which is where the protests were at their biggest in 2019, is a, a real proliferation and variation in, in ideas I don't think it would be right to classify Iraq's politics really as sectarian politics completely now. Whilst the Sunni vote does appear to be captured by one guy mostly now, which is Mohammed Harbousi. But when it comes to the voting in the South, in Baghdad, it's not just about sectarian identity now. That's not to say that the whole system isn't still built around these quota systems. It is. And that is a great root of frustration for people. It means that the established political parties can keep dividing up the state between themselves by appointing their people into high-ranking civil service positions that helps them to keep control of resources. That is still part of the kind of sectarian political order. But in terms of politics itself and the parties and the figures who are gunning for votes, I would say that, yeah, I think we have probably moved past just a sheer identity politics. When... When I was learning about politics, and I assume when you were learning about politics, the assumption was that elections allow voters to push out politicians who don't perform and push in politicians who do. And yet in Lebanon, as you say, the, the economy has melted down. 
in Iraq, there have been not only economic problems, but problems providing water, especially in the South, electricity, and all these, these problems that you would think both push people to either want different politicians or destroy the whole system. As somebody living in places where it's surprising that people don't really rise up and really shake the government, really force a change. Have you begun to think differently about when revolutions happen, about how people think about revolution, about how people think about profound change? I think there's some very important context here, which is if you're Iraqi and you're going to the street to protest, which say you were doing that in October 2019, there were people dying around you the whole time. It was a really life or death situation in certain aspects. And, and many of the young people that I've interviewed over the years saw horrible things when they went to those squares. Now, in Lebanon, the, the violence maybe wasn't so vast, but certainly there was tons of tear gas used and also lots of aggression from the security forces. So when you're going out to protest, you are thinking, OK, could I lose an eye today? Could I lose a limb? And then, OK, I got injured now I can't work. There's no state that's going to look after me now. We can have a lot of romanticized and grandiose ideas about revolution and about the power of the people, but ultimately your body is on the line when you're going out to the streets. And let's not forget the third country that I look after. Syria had this big revolution that turned into a horrible decade-long civil war, which has displaced millions of Syrians and driven millions more out of the country and killed somewhere like half a million people. I don't think that was lost on anyone in Lebanon, and it certainly wasn't lost on Iraqis either. And Iraqis pushed it pretty far in October 2019 in terms of their attempt to see systemic change, but they were really attacked by that system that they were trying to change. I think there's enormous... But then you're saying, I want to get rid of the system, but then what? And that's the, the Arab Spring conundrum that, that in many cases... It was even more unthinkable in 2011 to rise up against the government. But you look around the region, you look at a place like Egypt, where people say not much change, if anything, a little bit worse. You look at a place like Syria, change arguably much worse, a place like Yemen. How much are people talking about the Arab Spring experience, either about the futility of doing it or about the limits that one has to impose for fear of falling into a a Yemen, uh, a Libya, uh, a Syria situation? Not that many people have brought up 2011 to me, just I think probably because Lebanon and Iraq did not have, you know, um, attempted revolutions in, in 2011. The general understanding that in part about the Arab Spring in many countries which experienced the so-called Arab Spring uprisings, there hasn't been much in the way of an improvement in the lives of ordinary people. And I think that's also definitely not lost on folks in, in Iraq and, and Lebanon. Both countries have seen such profound and horrible episodes of civil war or civil strife. I think there's going to always be that fear at the back of everyone's mind that we could always drift back towards that. And you also mentioned the, the Iran thread that runs through this whole area you're covering, that, that Iran is involved in politics. Do you sense that Iran is trying to draw from its Lebanon experiences as it thinks about its strategies in Iraq? Or are there really two different sets of strategies going on? 
certainly you can see some patterns, I think, in the way that analysts say that Iran views the two countries. I mean, Hezbollah was and is a great success for the Iranian Revolutionary Guard cause foreign policy. But I think it's very important to stress that Hezbollah in Lebanon is deeply connected to Tehran and backed by Iran and often funded by Iran. But it does make its own decisions. And I do think it has its own leeways. And it's very much a Lebanese organization. It's wrong to think of it as being like an alien that arrived here, you know, on the back of Ayatollah Khamenei's. Hezbollah is the most influential and powerful single group in this country right now in Lebanon. When it comes to Iraq, Iran's been highly involved since 2003. It's often considered that the US opened the door for Iran to come and live in Iraq, if you like. Let's try to remember important context being the eight-year war between Iran and Iraq that happened in the 1980s. And that was a horrendous war. And Iran never wants to see an Iraq that can mount that kind of threat to its very existence ever again. So I don't think Iran wants to see like a burning waste pile next door. Certainly, it likes to be able to have its influence through its armed proxies in Iraq. And it's been useful. I think it's going to be very interesting to see how things change after uh, Qasem Soleimani. His relationships were extremely deep in the country. His understanding of those militias was much greater than the, the current guy, Rani, who's come into post. There was a way in which the port blast in August of, of 2020 sort of distilled political issues, distilled the idea of political dysfunction in Lebanon um, and provided a focal point. Do you sense that Iraq has a, a similar focal point for disillusionment with the political system? Could it develop a focal point for disillusionment with the political system? It doesn't have one yet. Is there the same um, sort of focus of, of discontent in Iraq that, that, that we've seen emerge in Lebanon over the last year and a half? I'm not sure I agree with the premise there was a moment after the August 4th blast in Beirut where there was just so much anger at the political system and what it had allowed to happen that you felt like that might have been the moment where things could have teetered, like maybe that would have been the moment where the system came crashing down. The government at the time did resign. But what happened was is that the international community came running in saying like, we're here to help Lebanon, particularly Emmanuel Macron of France, who came in and legitimized the whole political system by meeting with all of these uh, top political bosses in Lebanon. And that really saved them. After that, the sense of vicious anger dissipated. And now when you're seeing protests in Lebanon, it's about much smaller and specific things about accountability and about justice. It's not anymore the killin yani killin, all of them means all of them. That's not what's happening. Iraq, we've had a bigger chance recently to see the outcome of that disillusionment that you're talking about, disenfranchisement and frustration with the political system because Iraq just had elections. And what we saw was the historically low turnout, even by Iraq standards. So last time there was an election, which was 2018, you had like 44% of registered voters turned out, 41% this time, so even worse. The low turnout helps parties like that of Muqtadar al-Sadr, the populist cleric who has a big following amongst working class Shia. His vote didn't necessarily grow. It's just that the other parties got less votes. Some of the parties that did better last time, like uh, that of Haider al-Abadi and then Amar al-Hakim, really got a 
kicking from the electorate and the party that represents the interests of the Iran-aligned militias didn't do so well. So you can see the frustration with the political system, but also the frustration with the violence and the instability that these militias have stoked at the same time as the inconsequential, unhelpful politics that the moderates had brought. No one saw them having made any positive change. It does raise the question of whether politics are going to be able to tamp down this deep discontent with the way political systems work. I mean, you have elections in both places. The elections are free and fair within the the structures that are established. And yet there seems to be a rising sense, both of economic disarray and also of, of deep political corruption. So I'm just wondering where this, you know, is this continues along where it goes? In both situations, you have a very well entrenched political establishment that does not want to give up what it has. Here in, in Lebanon and Iraq, the political establishments both have enormous amounts of resources at their disposal to squash and um, co-opt any kind of dissent that arises. In Iraq, I've talked ad nauseum about the kind of attacks by militias and others on protesters and activists who are seeking to mount their demand for change and sometimes organize to try to push forward for change. That makes it you know, virtually impossible, yet people keep still trying to do it. In Lebanon, the existing political parties are much better organized and well-experienced at co-opting independent movements. This is the second time that Lebanon's had a really big protest movement in the last few years. In 2015, there was also huge protests. The You Stink movement, it was called at the time. But those new parties did not manage to make much penetration when it came to election time in 2018. Hopefully some lessons have been learned about why that didn't work, but I still haven't seen much sign, to be honest, of organized opposition in Lebanon that might be able to make a big dent in the elections which are going to happen next year. It's just so difficult structurally to make people-led political change. And we talked about Iran's influence, but there's a lot of other countries that have meddled historically in these nations. And there's a sense amongst so many people who I speak to that, you know, we can't change anything because there's all these countries who are ready to upend everything or, or manipulate us to suit their own agendas. And there's a grain of truth in that, you know, it's, they're, they're not entirely wrong. I don't know if we should be expecting populations to force these kinds of sweeping political changes because they're not armed they don't have all the money that these politicians have, and they don't have the backing of big international players. We shouldn't expect so much. We should not blame them for not doing this. It's just, it's really hard. I guess living here, I know a lot of people who desperately, desperately want change. You know, they end up chasing your tail. It's like, what should we try? We tried going to the street, nothing happened. There was a huge, massive explosion in the middle of our capital city, and that didn't even change things. So you understand the short-term frustrations. And if you're looking over a longer term or a medium term, maybe when we're looking back in the rearview mirror, we will see these moments as moments of profound change where something did shift. But it's going to take a lot longer and a lot more of those moments, I think, to make a real change to these rotten political establishments. Next, John, Will, and I continue the conversation about the nature of sectarian political systems in Iraq and Lebanon. 
So one of the core similarities that Cornish identified between Iraq and Lebanon was the sectarian nature of their political systems and the dysfunction that that type of system breeds in everyday politics. Is that kind of dysfunction just inherent in a sectarian system or is there something unique about Iraq and Lebanon? Something very interesting that a friend of mine pointed out about Iraq in the early 2000s, that the US didn't plant the seeds of sectarian division in Iraq but after the occupation, it watered them very carefully. There are problems with sectarian systems or advantages to sectarian systems. But one of the things that we saw in Iraq is the US had an opportunity to build whatever system it wanted to build. And it built a sectarian system without thinking about what that would mean, without thinking about what should you learn from the Lebanon experience to avoid. And the US helped bake a more sectarian system into Iraq. And in many ways, Iraqis have been struggling with the consequences of that decision ever since. I think in Lebanon as well, the sectarian system has just institutionalized gridlock in the country. The Ta'if Accord was meant to ensure equal representation, but had the effect of institutionalizing this gridlock because the three most powerful figures, the president, the prime minister, and the speaker of parliament, had essentially the same power. And that meant that the gridlock could only be broken by negotiations to split up the the spoils of public office. Another problem with Lebanon, which kind of is in parallel to sectarianism, but not necessarily the same as a sectarian system, is the fact that the Ta'if Accord effectively turned warlords into statesmen. And these warlords were sectarian leaders, because that's uh, sort of how how the civil war had played out. And so I think then you had these figures who had amassed uh, huge amounts of resources throughout the civil war, who then came to have this political power as well. And Lebanon has one of the largest proportions of billionaires per population in the world. There are these figures who are enormously wealthy and are then able to ensure their bases through patronage networks. In 2016, the World Bank estimated that 9% of Lebanon's GDP is wasted on patronage. Wasted on patronage depends on whether you're receiving it or not. And one of the things that patronage has done in Lebanon and Iraq is it's tried to ensure that in some ways everybody's a beneficiary. The challenge is that means everybody is a demand on the national treasury. One of the things we've seen in both Iraq and Lebanon is if everybody's drawing on the treasury and and people aren't putting in, that the treasury then runs out of money. On the idea that there's not enough money to go around for everyone, this then creates this competition and this feeling that there isn't enough, that there's sort of a scarcity and that the only people who can provide for you are your respective leaders, who are also then your sectarian leaders. So it's really hard to shift when there's this feeling that Um, they're the people who are looking out for you and able to provide for you because if they don't, then others will snatch up those resources. And that means an awful lot of money is spent, not because it's necessary to spend it, but because it's necessary to support the patronage system. And while every political system in some ways rewards spending for political reasons in a system like Iraq and Lebanon, there's a huge amount of spending that is purely for political reasons and a lot of ineffective spending. A lot of spending that needs to be done isn't done because all the spending has gone toward patronage. This strikes me that we talked a lot in sustainable states about 
being able to foster trust in government with reliable services that reach a majority of the population or the whole population. What's the difference between a system that can do that, fostering trust, and this patronage system where I only trust the patron that's going to provide for me? One is the state and one is not the state. In Lebanon, because the state is not providing these services, people are turning to these alternatives. And that necessarily then weakens the state. It weakens the legitimacy of the state, further weakens the capacity of the state as people turn to these alternative service providers. What we were sort of trying to write about is by saying, if you can find ways to show that the state can provide for people, that could start to turn people away from these alternative networks, which are being competition with the state and working against the idea of the central state as a competent and capable body. It really has to do with what you want the state's role in the economy to be. Do you want the state to be driving the economy and supporting millions of citizens? Or do you want the state to play a more regulatory role, a role as a referee between different actors, but not being the institution writing all the checks for the population. I think the danger of this sectarian system is that the people at the top of the system are the ones who ensure that the state is paying off the people under them while taking their cut. And you have a huge amount of spending that is meant just to increase spending rather than to increase either the capacity of the state or the welfare of citizens as a whole. Is there an inflection point in this? Is there a point for either Lebanon or Iraq where the state or the patronage system is just not going to be able to provide? And that's going to then have this effect where people are going to actually rise up against this system? I think Chloe Cornish made the point quite plainly that it's very hard to imagine an alternative to it. The system has a lot of power. The people in the system have a lot of power. They're not afraid to protect it. And she felt that certainly look around the region, you look at the consequences of the Arab Spring, there aren't a lot of huge success stories. Even if you don't like the current system, how do you get to a better alternative that helps entrench the current system? It's one of the reasons why the Arab Spring felt so unimaginable to Middle East experts in 2011. It's one of the reasons why people are so disappointed with what the Arab Spring has wrought a decade later. I think that point about fear and insecurity is incredibly important here. One of my friends embodies this. He is a Christian in Lebanon. He was out on uh, protesting in the streets in, in 2019. He protested after the Beirut port explosion. He said he wants a completely new system. But just this week, we saw these clashes and this violence in Beirut, which left six people dead and, and more than 30 injured. And he posted a picture of the Lebanese forces who are accused of having been behind this on Facebook. And I contacted him and I said, I thought you didn't like these groups. And he was like, look, they're marching into Christian areas. They're aggressors. This, he was talking about Hezbollah and, and Amal, the two big Shia parties. The Lebanese forces are standing up for us. Just stories like that, I think, help get at this idea that when there is a breakdown in security and a breakdown in services and, and in welfare, people do turn to someone who can provide for them. You know, it's, it's like people don't want to pay taxes, except sometimes you realize you need the government to protect you. When the government doesn't protect you, you pay taxes to sectarian groups that will protect you. And resistance to paying those taxes goes down the more you need either the protection or the support or something else 
from one of these groups. So it seems to me like we have, on the one hand, a very entrenched system, but on the other hand, signs that these populations are moving a little bit away from that sectarian thinking that led to this in the first place. So Chloe Cornish mentioned that despite the system's deep reliance on sectarianism in Iraq, the people are voting in a way that is not particularly sectarian. Well, I think she argued that it wasn't merely sectarian, that certainly in Iraq you have multiple Shia political parties, for example, and they compete. But still, you don't have a lot of Shia voting for Sunni candidates, and you don't have a lot of Arabs voting for Kurdish candidates and so on. There remains a lot of sectarianism. And I think one of the really interesting points that I hadn't thought of very much, but but clearly is very much in her mind, is that one of the consequences of the sectarian system is that nobody ever gets a majority and you always have to cobble together coalitions to rule. And certainly one of the things that American political leaders were concerned about in the 18th century was how do you avoid the tyranny of the majority? And these sectarian systems seem to help you avoid the tyranny of the majority. In Lebanon, there is no majority. But how you move beyond a sectarian system, how you get a system that is more meritocratic, how do you get a system that, that talks about ideas instead of identity, how you get a system that isn't about just the math of populations, which I think is what you can fall into in these systems where you can't change your identity. So you end up having very rigid systems that can't ebb and flow, I think is a challenge that, that a lot of these protesters would like to figure out and haven't figured out. It's important to remember that the Taif Accord specifically said that the sectarian system of, sort of parliamentary elections is not meant to be the enduring system in Lebanon. It's meant to be temporary and then phased out. There was meant to be a Senate established, which that part would have representatives of different religious groups. But then the parliamentary system would shift away from sectarian identity. Now, that hasn't happened in part because of the power of these groups who all band together to block it. We've seen they block everything. Right now, we're seeing it with the Beirut blast investigation. They sort of band together to make sure that MPs can't be questioned and can't be arrested. They protect each other, I think, at enormous costs. And, and that is a really difficult block to break. One of the problems for these new parties that are running in the elections is that they're new. For one, they don't have the sort of political experience. I think we saw this in Iraq just now. Imtidad, which was kind of a, a party born out of the protest movement, actually did quite well in the South and they picked up seats. But they got, just in, in, in one, looking at one um, governorate, they got double the amount of votes as the Sadrists, but only got five seats where Sadrists got eight. And that's because of sort of tactics and, and, and whatnot and, and sort of knowing where to run candidates and where not. So I think it's going to take a while for them to learn how to to play the system to, to gain power. And these sectarian parties have been doing this for decades, several decades in Lebanon's case. So I think that's one thing. I think another thing is right now they're um, a really broad swath of anti-establishment feeling, but it's hard for them to say, what are they for? What are they, what unites them? What policies can they propose rather than just being against the current system? And so I think a vote for these parties is a gamble for people because they don't know exactly what they're going to get with it, other than some kind of change. But it, it may not be better than, than these groups who've 
in many ways have been proven to provide in some way for their constituents. So I think it's not going to be a quick change. But I think looking at Iraq, I think there are some positive signs. I think for Lebanon over the next six months or so, it'll really be a challenge for these anti-establishment parties to try and have a broad coalition and to represent something that actually is appealing to people and that can earn their trust, the trust of the voters. John and Will, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Caleb. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. 